Tonight, the essential lessons from New York City's past for our post-pandemic future. From the 70s fiscal crisis to broken windows to reimagining the city after 9-11, we look back at the players and the policies that have made New York, New York. MetroFocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. After the pandemic and amid the national surge in crime that's not left us untouched, New York City is no doubt going through a serious transition. But this is obviously not the first time the city has experienced such a major transformation. So what lessons can we learn from the various evolutions the city has gone through in the past, particularly since the massive fiscal crisis that almost put New York out of its misery just over 40 years ago? That time period and those post-crisis evolutions are the subject of award-winning author Thomas Dijah's most recent book, New York, New York, New York, for decades of success, excess, and transformation. He provides a panoramic view of the critical events and key players from all facets of city life that made New York what it is today. Thomas Dijah joins us now. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. By the way, first of all, this the time that you cover in the book is almost exactly the time that I've lived in New York City. So it's like a trip you know, down memory lane, particularly now I realize so many of the players in all the aspects of New York life I've 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 known I've met I've talked to so it was it was quite nostalgic but 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 let me start right off the back you know as 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 I say the book takes us through a number of evolutions four evolutions to be specific or distinct time periods that you believe the city has experienced over the past forty years or so um, and the first of those periods you call the Renaissance in effect the period when the city was coming back to life from the almost fatal uh, fiscal crisis. Um, can you give us a real quick summary of, of that fiscal catastrophe? How did it happen and what did it do to the city? Right. I mean, the, the fiscal crisis was really um, a product of, of good intentions gone awry, really. Um, the city was really trying to do probably more than it could do realistically uh, with its money. And so it was uh, spending more than it could and basically borrowing more than it needed, more than it could really honestly dealing with the markets. And so, you know, tax money comes in twice a year. And so the city had to borrow kind of on a regular basis every week to borrow money from the banks. And at a certain moment, the bank said, no, we're not going to do it anymore because the city was basically borrowing money to pay back the interest that it on uh, money it had borrowed before. So um, it was a moment of, of kind of wake up for the city, which was really not being 
run well on on a day-to-day level. I mean, it wasn't just about money. It was about the city not being up-to-date technologically. We did things on pieces of paper that other cities were already doing, um, you know, with computers. It was a real wake-up call for the city as a whole to kind of get to the next level. And so when Koch takes over, um, in a real upset, frankly, um, the expectation was, um, you know, he wasn't the guy that everyone wanted, you know, the, the kind of power people were behind. So he, but he kind of evoked this sense of what the city wanted to believe, people who deeply believed in New York and thought it could come back. Um, and so his charge is to really bring the city back to cut it down to to next to nothing in terms of what it had to pay out real austerity budget so firing city workers cutting budgets cutting budgets but at the same time trying to reinvigorate the city something like a million plus people had left the city over those years kind of the the decade before he needed to bring them back so how did you draw how could you draw people back to the city um and and how could you get kind of get tax revenues going again get residents new people new businesses um the downside of that is that part of the deal that he kind of made with um a certain kind of element of of population was that the city, there was a sense that the city had been kind of taken over by people of color, that control was in wrong hands during that. And so the divisive negative side of what Koch brings to the table Mm -hmm. is a kind of New York nativism um, and, and his real, you know, along with the good that he does is a very negative side of, of racial divisiveness. Yeah, yeah, you mix him, you give him a mixed review, clearly, but but it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you that you consider him critical for the Renaissance. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about some of the other players, whether in government or not. Some of the other events and some of the other players that characterize this period. Right. I mean, I think the two most important things that, that Koch does are that, you know, I think he gets credit for. One is the the housing, um, the housing initiative that he does really with Cuomo um, kind of in the late 80s. And by, by really focusing and saying, we're going to take on housing in the city. And so it becomes rather than a single policy, it, it is a remarkable moment in which banks, sh- you know, shareholders, stakeholders, community groups, all kinds of, of people and organizations get together and really focus on the issue and redevelop places that are piles, acres and acres of rubble in places like, you know, East New York and South Bronx over the years become places where people are living again. The Nehemiah projects, just one example of, of out of East New York, of, of community groups working with banks, working with the city and rebuilding neighborhoods. So when Giuliani comes along and the city seems like, oh my God, it's all back together. A lot of it is because those neighborhoods were already being rebuilt. The other thing about Koch that I think is very important throughout the whole arc of this book is that he brings in a group of people um, who are involved in the city almost through those 40 years, people who have a, a new attitude about what the city can do, what people in the city can do, what the city's um, potentials are. So people like Gordon Davis, who's the Parks Commissioner, who is responsible for all kinds of things, Central Park Conservancy, Bryan Park, eventually Jazz at Lincoln Center, really behind that, Nat Leventhal, um, just people who are really focused on making the city work as their prime thing, not politics, not winners, losers, make the place function well. And, and that is kind of the Koch generation. And some of those folks are still around, you know, trying to make it happen. 
Yeah. So, you know, in, in many respects, it's hard to conceive of New York City, of the New York City of the 80s, a time which, of course, included the devastation of AIDS and the crack epidemic as a period of rebirth, as a period of right. renaissance. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the effects that those two tragedies had on the city and what and, and the effects that it may still be having on the city, the marks that it has left us, if you think there are some. Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the important things is generational. Um, you know, the baby boomers had been through, you know, Woodstock and, and Watergate and the Vietnam War. And there's a real sense in the early 80s, kind of late in 70s, that they were a generation, the first American generation that wasn't going to do better than their parents. I mean, it's hard to think of that now, you know, boomers being the, the sign of all terrible things. But before that, they were they was a sense that they were not going to get anywhere. And when the market takes off in the 80s, which is very much a part of when I say renaissance, it's not just about kind of Koch, um, you know, and policies out of City Hall. There's a broader kind of renaissance that happens where the boomers say, if I want to retire, if I want to pay for tuition, I better get into this market. And it becomes a kind of focal point of, of not just money capital, but social capital. It becomes the place where you know, the market and Reaganism kind of linked with it become this new explosion of what life in New York is. So things start getting cleaned up. It starts and it's a generational thing. It's not just a money thing. It's a it's our turn kind of thing as well. So what ended the Renaissance and what led to the next evolutionary period, which you can, which you call the reconsideration? Well, you know, when you're starving, they tell you not to eat too much too fast, right? And I think New York ate too much too fast. There was a kind of gluttony that takes place in that early kind of mid '80s period, that and that which is prime. Bonfire of the vanities. Bonfire of the vanities. Leona Helmsley, yeah. and you know, the first Trump Trump Volume One, right? I mean, it was just. <laughs> so much so fast, um, along with a very exciting downtown scene, kind of other cultural things, but it was a lot really fast. And so Black Monday um, in 87 kind of rings the bell, you know, last call for drinks here because the market is going to, you know, really teeter. Um, racially, a lot of the things that Koch had been setting up are just about to blow up. It had not been, it had been a divisive period um, in terms of of policing and and race, Michael Stewart, the numbers of kind of uh, kind of all come to a head in '89, which is this kind of explosion, really. Um, you know, Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing" is a great expression of what that was about. Everything takes off, crack, crime, it, it just blows up. So this Renaissance kind of ends up uh, popping and going back down in a certain way. So the mayor during the reconsideration, it was David Dinkins. And as you describe him and as I remember him, uh, he was the quintessential anti-populist. You know, the last person one could imagine rousing a rabble, right? As you say, you know, uh, given what we've experienced, you know, I think a lot of us long for somebody like that in any position of, of leadership now. But you say that that, that quality of, of, of civility is, is precisely was one of the most important reasons why his leadership failed. Ex explain why. Well, I mean, I guess in a way he was very much a politician, right? I mean, he was an inside guy. He had come up in Harlem politics kind of through his in-laws, and um, he was not going to be the first guy marching ahead. You know, there are other people in that group, Charlie Rangel, Percy Sutton, who were kind of ahead, who you would have picked, who had run for mayor at other times, who were kind of the more 
faces of that scene. And, and it kind of just came to Dinkins um, by the end. And one of the things that um, what was problematic with him was a certain sense of indecision, um, as he was very much a uh, someone who wanted to do the right thing. You know, you have to give that to him. I think his intentions were always strong, but it left him with that kind of paralysis way yeah. too often of, of this is what I need to do on a political level. This is what should be done. And sometimes, um, oftentimes, maybe all the time, you need a mayor who can just cut through that and say, here's what has to happen. I'll take the flack. You do the hard thing. That's my job is to take the bullets for you to do it. And, and, Dinkins just too many times, even though through his entire four years, crime goes down from day one. Yep. It starts yep. going down and it goes down fast, yep. but it doesn't go down fast enough. Right, right. Crack peaks, you know, all kinds of things peak during his mayorality. Um, and so at the end of the day, it, it was the the he was not able to really fully express what was going on that was positive. People just didn't buy it. Crown Heights riots certainly didn't help. Um, along the way, squeegee men, the, the, he could not really express to the everyday New Yorker that he understood what how yeah. gross it was and how dangerous people felt, even though it was getting better. He just couldn't get in there and really make people feel that. You know, and, and, and I want to get to that because, you know, everything you say rings true. But except this, I have to say, you know, you write of this period that, quote, New Yorkers, white, black, rich, and poor, crawled into their holes, locked the doors, and hunkered down. And, uh, and you do quote people from that era who were writing the same thing at that time. Right. But I, I lived through that period here, as I know you did. And um, and I encountered many unfortunate uh, criminal situations, right. uh, as did a lot of my friends who were in the gamut of, of class, race, right. and age. Um, but none of us hunkered down. I don't remember that period like that at all. Right. And I think it's because unlike now that after we've experienced 30 years of safe cities, we hadn't experienced that then. And we just it was baked in the cake. Right. You're no, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it, listen, it's interesting talking about people to, uh, to people about crime today as people talk about crime today. And I keep seeing, you know, if you had been around for all that, you know, <laughs> that this is nothing, you know, and, and there's a real. Um, there is a truth to that. And so, yeah, of course you went about your business, not as if we were, you know, we were literally in the kind of COVID lockdown situation. But I would say that it was still a time when I remember during Giuliani jumping ahead at a certain moment, say being outside at, at one in the morning and saying like to myself, gosh, I haven't been outside at one in the morning in a long time. You know, it was not a place where it's it true. was really you did party out there. And, and that was part of the optics of that feeling in 94 when he comes in that first year or two that people were back out in the streets and there were they were the, the life in the city started to go back outside. So, listen, you know, it was also those first, you know, VCR DVDs and all those movies around. Maybe I was just like diving into that too much. But <laughs> look, a lot of people did. Street life was not as prevalent, you know, and, and, uh, you know, maybe I was just a lazier guy. My age. Maybe it was my age. I didn't care. I just went out, but in any of out there clubbing <laughs> and that was, you know, no, I was, I miss those days. I have to say. So what ended the reconsideration? Well, you know, it, it, even though things continued to get better, um, you know, this was the moment of that first, um, 
that, that first wave of, you know, what we now call woke kind of stuff, but then it was called PC, right? Political correctness. And um, you had the Whitney Biennial, which was very kind of challenging with a lot of these same ideas about diversity and, and are we going to look at the city in a different way that's going to be more inclusive? And along with that sense of, of fear and crime that Dinkins was never able to really dispel, even though you had Bryant Park, even though you had things starting to get better and kind of, it, it felt to some people like that. You remember that part in Perfect Storm where they get through the terrible part and then it's sunny and then the other wave is coming. You know, there was that feeling that that there was another wave coming somehow. And so Giuliani is able to really use to combine that that Clinton sense of reinventing government of, you know, we're, we're the young people, we're finally, the boomers are finally taking charge. We know how to do this. We can be liberals, but still pay the bills kind of mindset, um, along with a fear, a real fear of, of, of other people who aren't white being in control, basically. And I think that he turns them versus us into a real platform. Uh, and, right, we'll get to that. You know, it, it, they his, kind of merge together. You know, I mean, because so, so, but you call that period the the Reformation, and and <laughs> and, uh, and cleverly, I wanted to, I, I shaped the question to say who were the Martin Luthers and the and the John Calvins of this Reformation, and, and you can leave uh, Giuliani and William Bratton uh, for later because we're going to touch on him in a second. Right. But but who else? Just give us a few examples. Time is running out, unfortunately. The, um, you know, who are the other, they really, well, there was that whole world around the Manhattan Institute, you know, it's kind of a think tank that um, kind of posed as being sort of centrist. And we're going to look at very practical kinds of answers to things about urbanism. And it attracted a lot of really smart people to it. But yeah, we've it, had a lot of them here on the show. And I'm they are smart. You know, I, I'm sure, but it is still the organization that funded Charles Murray. It is, it was kind of built on a, a very, um conservative to be kind kind of kind of base and um i think a lot of terrific ideas were put out in there they were very often ideas that had been things that had been come out of the Koch era. When you read Reinventing Government, which was everybody's handbook, a lot of the examples in the book actually came from the Koch era and from Koch literally himself in those years. So there was a kind of repurposing of, of how are we going to make these things work again this time? Um, so, I mean, in the sense of, of kind of Calvinism of that period, I mean, it is led by that sense of we're going to get it back, you know, and honestly talking about anybody who isn't Giuliani in this world is is missing the big bear, you know. Well, well let's get to that, you know, turning to crime and uh, and to the nearly three decades or the nearly three decades of plummeting crime in the city, which began in full. I, I, we know it began with with Dinkins, but we began, as you did, began to notice it during the during the Giuliani years. Um, about those years, you write about that. You write in the end. No one policy or person ended crime as we know it in New York. Now, that's no doubt obviously accurate, but couldn't we say that we do have a sense of the cluster of policies? You kind of touched on this, the cluster of policies and the key players that ended crime as we know it in New York. I mean, the key players, maybe you want to include Dinkins, but certainly William Bratton and certainly Giuliani. Um, and the policies, you know, the policies that that Bratton instituted, um, which dramatically raised the cost of the transactional cost of crime, which basically with, with you know, there's, you talk about a lot of different things, but ultimately boils down to that. They made crime pay. I mean, not pay, 
right. cost to be quick. And that's what lowered the crime. And Bratton was the architect of that. And Giuliani, even though he unceremoniously fired him, kept those policies going. Can't they be named as the progenitors of this? You know, I would say, though, that, you know, I look at crime in a kind of, I don't know, I can't help but to see it in a kind of health metaphor, right? I mean, it's a part of the health of the, of the body politic. And so when you talk about policing, that is very much one one important, crucial part of the whole equation. But as I said before, you know, to to take places that were high crime and you've literally fixed those broken windows, not by arresting people, not by frisking people, but by literally fixing the windows. And that meant that housing policy. That meant taking places that were high crime and not necessarily gentrifying them, but providing housing, rebuilding the context of what a neighborhood is, letting communities drive that situation and drive that argument of rebuilding a place. That was enormous. Um, it, it also had to do with things like education. Um, th there was a kind of uh, end of what crack coming down was enormous. You had that cohort of, of young men, largely, who killed themselves and killed each other. And suddenly that group of people who were at risk got smaller and smaller and smaller. The nature of how the drug business changed from being a street corner thing to a beeper thing. So there's all these different pieces that to say that what we what solved it was just the police, one crucial part of it. What you can't say is that um, incarceration was a solution. It wasn't. Incarceration actually went down in New York during all that time. And the same time that the cops are going out there, number, there were a lot of people working on bringing that down. So, I mean, to me, the issue is having a police that, that protects and serves. What happened was it became a police that controlled. Yeah, and that is a very different yeah. thing and that's yeah. not a song that's going to stand got we have to move on because I mean, that could be a whole topic on its <laughs> yeah, exactly. own but, yes. I, but i want to get to 9 11 because you're you're, yeah. you're it's very moving your section on 9 11 and you write about it uh, particularly um i want to talk about the 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 brief poignant moment that those of us who lived through 9 11 uh experience in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, a moment that, as you cite, writer uh, Rebecca Solnit has described as disaster utopia. It was an experience that I never felt before. I haven't felt yeah. since. It was a, it was just, I mean, I hate to say it, but it was, I mean, it was real solidarity and real love. Talk about that moment and why it didn't last. I, well, you know, I, I grew up in Chicago. I moved here when I was 18. And I have to say for a long time, even though I raised my kids here, bought an apartment, all that kind of stuff, I never really said I'm a New Yorker. And I remember I went to the 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 third game of the World Series that year, took my son, got tickets somehow, and going through that whole experience, kind of surreal experience. And, and after the game, you know, when, when they win, they play Frank Sinatra. And Everybody, 60,000 people are singing Frank Sinatra. They're weeping. And I realize, oh, my God, I'm a New Yorker. I can't avoid it anymore. You know, that feeling of just being so enmeshed with people and being to connect with people and constantly talk to people and not even the trust level it was so high, you know, and that was so devastating in COVID since the answer or the requirement of that was exactly the opposite. It was a tragedy of a multiple number of lives, but we couldn't connect, we couldn't hug, which is the thing that we all did constantly after 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, we have to move on. We have less than five minutes left, and I got a lot, 
Let's move to the to the reinvention period, which of course right. is the Bloomberg. Quickly characterize that and and tell us who the key players were as quickly as possible. Absolutely. I mean, you have a, a person, a real visionary, somebody who wants to be a kind of philosopher king, someone with great ideas who is able to pay for a lot of things. So he's able to, you know, put a handle on taxes and please the business community at the same time as he can fund a lot of fabulous cultural things going on. Um, I think ultimately the problem is that his idea was reasonably so to let people do their job. And at a certain point um, in a post 9-11 world, um, selling the city to others, bringing in money, um, and taking that kind of simple equation, which makes sense on a kind of dollars and cents level, um, keep the streets safe at all costs and getting rich people to pay taxes, ends up really undermining who is the city for? What's the whole point of this? Is it to bring in that money to help us to build better schools, to make our transit better? Or is it to just make this cycle of making more things to bring in more people to pay more taxes, to make more fancy things? So in a nutshell, I say would that would be Bloomberg, a person with, with I think, strong intentions, immense intelligence, but ended up a little too many, too far steps away from the people. All right. You know, you don't say much about Bill de Blasio. He appears in the epilogue. It seems clear that you don't think much of him. And unfortunately, we don't have time for you to explain why people will have to read the book. Uh, some people probably already can guess. But <laughs> so, so let me get to the final question, which is after the pandemic, after the surge in crime, after after what we've experienced in the last three years, what is next for the city? What's the next evolution? And what's the one that you hope for? And we got three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. Boy, what I'm really hoping is that the next evolution includes a lot of housing. Um, I hope that it's 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 a city and a, a business community coming together and really looking at what work and housing is and how that works. So that's something like a Penn Station redevelopment, that whole area is something that's not just about building more super talls. It needs to be, if we're going to redo the city, let's really think about how we make work, leisure, affordable housing, low-income housing work together and some kind of way of doing that. So I think that is really crucial. And I do hope that um, the one thing that gave me hope during those COVID years, years was how much people talked about equity. That word was out there for the first time in kind of common parlance, and I haven't heard it anywhere for better than a year. And so I'd really like us to dust that off, and all these conversations need to have that in the context that we were having it then, which was of realization and concern, um, not this kind of of. of false flag, wokeness kind of stuff. But let's really talk about what the people in the city need to do to work together and take us to the next place. How optimistic are you that we'll get there? You know, the city has been through a lot. Um, my next book is taking me back all the way to the beginning. And the city has been through a, a shocking number of horrifying disasters. Um, and we just keep getting up and going on. So actually, uh, I'm hopeful. I'm I'm more than hopeful. Well, Tom, uh, the book is New York, New York, New York. So nice. You named it thrice. Uh, the Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. It's a great read. I hope people go out and buy it. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. 
also available at wliw.org radio and on the NPR One app.